Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mason Brown. I am the uh, community director here at Rio, and it is a joy uh, to be here with you this morning. It is truly uh, a privilege uh, to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, but before we do, uh, about a month ago, I ventured out and I did something crazy. I went to the dentist. Which I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit nervous about. Uh, one, uh, because I haven't been flossing, uh, which I know is an incredibly weird thing to admit. But every time I go to the dentist, I know that the hygienist is going to ask me whether or not I've been keeping up with my flossing, which I kind of want to be like, uh, of course I haven't. I mean, look at my mouth. But uh, secondly, I was a little bit nervous uh, since we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I had no clue what to expect. And so I go to the dentist, I I have my mask on, I sit down in the waiting room, and since all of the kind of 20-year-old dusty magazines have been removed from the coffee tables, I then turn to the next best thing, the source of all wisdom and knowledge, which is, of course, Twitter. And so I I open up my phone, I'm, I'm scrolling through everything, and as I'm doing that, Uh, All of a sudden, an old article from Newsweek actually catches my attention um, that a fellow pastor uh, retweeted. And I want to read just an excerpt uh, from it for you. Uh, The article is about Woody Allen. He's a famous uh, American uh, film director and critic. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with his movies, but this is what the article said. To meet with Woody Allen in hopes of a Tuesdays with Woody style affirmation of late life contentment. And you will be quickly disabused of that illusion. Even in his later years, he says that he still lies awake at night, terrified of the void. The article goes on to say, he knows why he makes movies, not because he has any grand statement to offer, but simply to take his mind off the existential horror of being alive. Movies are a great diversion, he says, quote, because it is more pleasant to be obsessed over how the hero gets out of his predicament than it is over how I get out of mine. And then later in the article, he says this, your perception of time changes as you get older because you see how brief it is. You see how meaningless. I don't want to depress you, but life is a meaningless little flicker. And I share that with you because if you've been here with us as we've been working our way through our study, All Things New, you then know that we've been on this journey in trying to understand the meaning of life. Each week we begin in the book of Ecclesiastes and then we end in the book of Philippians. And in the process, we look at two different worlds. And here's why we're saying that. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who identifies himself as the preacher, as we'll see today, It comes to us and he invites us into a hypothetical world. He says, look, I want you to join me in a world where there is no God, where there is no afterlife, where there is no heaven to be gained. There's no hell to be thwarted. There are no eternal rewards or punishments that you have to concern yourself with in this life. It just goes like this. There is life, there is death, and then there's burial. And that's it. For like eternity... And week by week, he comes to us with the same question. And the question is, okay, in that world, if that is true, does anything or anyone matter? And the answer is, of course not. And he proved it. I mean, right out of the gate, as we began this study together, we saw that Solomon came to us and he said, look, if all that there is is what you and I see with our two eyes under the physical light of the sun, 
then ultimately everything is meaningless. Or as Woody Allen put it, it's a meaningless little flicker. If that is the hypothetical or real world that we're living in. And even though he knows that he's made this impeccable argument, a case that we can't refute, that we can't undo, that we can't deny, we still don't believe him. He knows that at the end of the day, we are still going to chase after the things under the sun, whether that be money, um, how successful we are at work, pleasure, you name it, to try to derive our sense of meaning, purpose, value, significance, security, these things that God has put deep within our hearts to yearn for and not be able to find an answer for apart from him. And so Solomon, who understands this and who is brilliantly insightful, invites us on a journey where he, one by one, he takes up these things that we so, we so desperately cling to to show us how futile, how meaningless they truly are if all that there is is life, then death, and then burial. And this morning, we, we come to one of the more interesting categories that he takes up, and that is wisdom. I mean, out of all of the things under the sun that we can uh, chase after, that we can look to for our sense of meaning and purpose and value and significance and security, you would expect that wisdom, which Plato believed to be the purest and highest calling that one could pursue, should be able to at least provide us with some sort of meaning, some sort of understanding of what life is all about. And so the question for us this morning that we're going to be working through is, well, how far will wisdom, that which is found solely under the sun, apart from God, and take us? And starting in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 1, it says this, I, the preacher, Solomon, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I want to stop right there for a moment because I want you to notice that Solomon, he comes to us and he speaks in the perfect tense. He says, I have been king which tells us that he's writing near the end of his life from the vantage point of age and experience, which is important because this is the same man who, when he became king, God gave him an opportunity of a lifetime. He said, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And if we're on, which, if we're honest, kind of pales in comparison to the tale of Aladdin. I mean, just think about it for a moment. The the true and living God stoops down and offers anything that Solomon's heart desired. And instead of asking for fame or for money or for the destruction of his enemies, he asks for wisdom. And God was so pleased with his request that in 1 Kings 3.12, he says, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you have been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. In other words, God says, look, there will be no earthly king and that will come close to your ability to discern and understand the complexities of life. Your wisdom, which God will later say, will be like the sand on the seashore. It will be limitless in its capacity. However, as precious as this gift was, it wasn't like Solomon just woke up the next day understanding everything about life. He, he still had to apply himself to the pursuit of knowledge, which is exactly what he did. He devoted his life to learning. In verse 13, it says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And Solomon's quest in pursuing wisdom 
It was not only sincere, something that he focused his mind and disciplined his heart in seeking after the truth, but it was comprehensive as well. He wanted to understand life in its entirety, not just one aspect of it. And so his quest was as extensive as it was intensive. He wanted to know as much as he could about as many things as he could. He was a master in all sciences. He was a naturalist, an engineer, an architect. He understood uh, the, the science of government. He wanted to take it all in, leaving nothing out so that his conclusions would be as definitive as possible. This man was so wise that when the queen of Sheba came to him to test him regarding the hard questions of life, it says that he answers, with, he answers them with such ease that it knocks the breath out of her. I mean, think about that for a moment. That is how wise Solomon is. It's almost like to us, Solomon is like the incarnation of an iPhone. I know that we've made reference to that before, but it's so true. It's like you could just go to him, push a button, ask your question about whatever it might be, economics, relational issues, parents. You could even have him translate the new cultural and hip words that your teenagers are using. He would give you an answer. He investigated all that is done under heaven, hoping hoping that it would provide him with some sense of meaning, some sort of understanding of what life is all about. He says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But then he goes on to say, it is an unhappy business, or as some translations put it, a burdensome task that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Before Solomon finishes his quest, He anticipates that his search for meaning will come back null and void. He predicts that no matter how much wisdom he may glean from human experience and from the best and brightest of minds, that it will ultimately be meaningless. I mean, he says that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And you hear that, and it's like, man, why would God do such a thing? Why would he devise a system in such a way that life under the sun becomes this endless, self-defeating, pointless rat race in which we are never fully satisfied or fully content. Why would he do that? And the reason why, as we'll see later, is because God in his grace, in his love for us, in his desire to be in a relationship with us, with you, has created life in such a way that we will always be searching, longing, and seeking and for that abyss within our hearts to be filled, to be satisfied, until we look to him. But you might be wondering, okay, okay, well, what did Solomon actually discover? I mean, that's the whole point of this. I mean, Solomon is probably the most qualified person in helping us understand the meaning of life uh, under the sun, apart from God. And so what did he come to know? What did he actually conclude? Well, he continues on and he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. I have studied, I've investigated, I've experienced, I've chased after all that there is. And here's what I've come to conclude. You ready for it? Behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon at the end of his quest says, here's my evaluation. There are things in life that are unfixable. There are things that are crooked that cannot be made straight, no matter how hard you try. There are things that are lacking that cannot be counted. There are things that you value that do not last. Everything under the sun is marked by brokenness. And the, mo- and the longer that you try to make sense of this life, 
the more burdened and frustrated you become. And the reason why is because Solomon realized that there are limits to how far our wisdom, that which is found solely under the sun, apart from God, can take us. I mean, I just want you to think about that with me for a moment. The wise can discern, but are ultimately rendered powerless. This is the problem that every parent feels at some point or another. Uh, my son, Jaden, is two, and we already feel this tension, uh, which might not be a good thing, and so please uh, pray for us. Um, but as parents, we have the wisdom to see whether or not our children are on a collision course for destruction. And even though we can tell them exactly what they need to do, like step by step, our wise words can't save them. And Solomon knew this. In 1 Kings 3, there's this crazy story involving two prostitutes. And both of these women had sons which were born three days apart from one another. And they lived in the same house with one another. But unfortunately, during one night, one of the infants died. However, both women claimed the living child as their own. And so the question became, okay, well, how would King Solomon, in all of his wisdom, judge accordingly? And so these two women come before the king, and Solomon said, bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half, and we'll give half to each of you. And obviously, as you read that passage, you see that Solomon, he had no intention of actually cutting the baby in half, but he was after the truth. Based on the reactions of these two women, he was able to discern who the mother of the child was and who was being deceptive. And I think if we kind of take a step back for a moment, I think we all have to realize amazing justice, amazing judgment, truly amazing wisdom, brilliant in every way. But did Solomon's wisdom fix the real problem, the heart problem? And the answer is no. I mean, I very much doubt that the mother who was deceptive went away changed. I'm guessing that she was humiliated. I'm guessing that the relationship between these two women was forever severed. And Solomon's wisdom, as great as it was, did not change a liar into a truth teller. It did not undo the prostitution that was behind the baby in the first place. There are limits to how far our wisdom can actually take us. In verse 15, Solomon even says, look, no matter how hard you try, how much wisdom you invest into a certain situation, there are some things that we are simply unable to make straight. Solomon experienced this, and we do as well. As valuable as earthly wisdom may be, it cannot solve or fix the spiritual condition of our hearts. Just can't. And secondly, Solomon realized that the wise can increase in knowledge, but are ultimately filled with sorrow. Listen to what he says in verse 16. It says, I said in my heart, remember, he's looking for answers under the sun, apart from God. And so he turns to himself. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were, bef- oh, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so I applied my heart to know wisdom and to even know madness and folly. He says, my quest was for wisdom was so thorough that I even studied wisdom's counterpart, folly. I engaged in the foolishness of this world, hoping that it would be able to provide me with some sense of satisfaction and, and some sense of meaning. However, this too, he says, I perceived to be a striving after wind. 
which is such an interesting metaphor. It just is. Because when you go outside, right, you, you, you see the wind's effects more than you see the wind itself. I mean, it's invisible. And, and so to try to capture it, let alone to try to contain its power, is impossible. Uh, my son, Jaden, again, he is currently at the stage where he is uh, obsessed with bubbles. I mean, he could be having the worst day in the world, tantr- t- temper tantrum city, give, give the kids some bubbles, it'll, he will be filled with joy. Uh, but he's not just obsessed with bubbles, but he's specifically obsessed with popping bubbles. And so this past week, we, we go outside uh, in the backyard, and uh, I'm blowing some bubbles, and he's just running around trying to pop every bubble known to man. But the wind that day was just taking these things and just swirling them around. They were darting from one place to another, and you could see in his face, he was just getting aggravated. I mean, he just wanted to pop some bubbles. I mean, that's all he wanted to do. And so he, he sees one of those kind of toy bats off in the corner of his eye, and he picks that, thinking that that will maybe kind of rectify the issue, which I guess in hindsight uh, was a poor parenting moment on my part for allowing him to do that. Um, however, despite getting the bat and exerting every ounce of energy that he had, the bubbles were always winning. Maybe every now and then he would get a moment where he could grasp a single bubble. But once he touched it, it was gone. It vanished. All that was left was a little bit of the residue on his fingers, while the rest of them were just flying around his head. This is the limitation that Solomon felt regarding his pursuit of wisdom. The longer he looked for answers and the harder that he tried to understand life under the sun, the more burdened he became. He concludes by saying, For in much wisdom comes much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Where he once thought that wisdom could bring much joy and meaning to his life, it actually brought the opposite. It brought grief and frustration. The more he learned, the more he realized he didn't know. It's like trying to catch a bubble. Once you think you can fully understand something and can grasp it, it vanishes. And all that's left is a little bit of the residue on your fingers. And Solomon, he hits the limitation of himself and the awareness that uh, there are limits to how far his wisdom under the sun can take him, which ultimately led to feelings of frustration and even sorrow. And the reason why is because as he grew in knowledge, he grew in his awareness of humanity's brokenness and the effects that sin has on our life. The more he knew, the more he knew life's sorrows, which I assume caused him to ache, to yearn for a better world, a world where there was no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, and where death no longer rendered everything meaningless. Which leads me to my last point. Solomon realized that the wise can apprehend, but ultimately, death renders everything meaningless. A a continuing theme that we've seen all throughout the study is that no matter what you look to or chase after to try to derive your sense of meaning and purpose and value and significance and security, it'll ultimately be meaningless and lead to emptiness. I mean, if all that there is is life and then death and then burial, sure, you can can use your wisdom and all of its capacity to monopolize boardwalk and park place and and create the biggest empire that has ever existed. But in the end, it all goes back in the box. 
This is what ultimately led the modernist poet Ezra Pound to conclude regarding the vanity of life. He said, all my life I believed I knew something. But then one strange day came when I realized that I knew nothing. Yes, I knew nothing. And so words became uh, void of meaning. Likewise, the evolutionist Richard Dawkins concluded that human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. If all that there is, is life, then death, and then burial, then ultimately, everything is meaningless. And so where does that leave us? Well, the beautiful thing about this passage, and really the entire book of Ecclesiastes, is that it drives us to our knees, yearning for something more, something better, and maybe even someone greater than Solomon, who's actually able to satisfy our hearts and provide us with a wisdom that this world can't offer. And so as we turn to the New Testament, we find, in fact, that there is another king, someone greater than Solomon, and his name is Jesus. And unlike Solomon, who was limited in his wisdom, the Bible presents Jesus to us as the wisdom of God. In Colossians 3.2, Paul even mentions that Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you might be thinking, okay, well, that's kind of cool, uh, but what does it have to do with me? Well, as you read throughout the Gospels, you see that Jesus, who had all knowledge, he came to this earth and he willingly entered into all the vexation of life. And he experienced all of the limitations and frustrations that come with it. And one of the many names that scripture even refers to Jesus as is man of sorrows. He took on the complexities of this life when he didn't have to. And he even took on what many called foolishness. He willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, which is death. And he rose from the grave, proving that he had defeated both sin and death. But to what end? I mean, why did he do all of that? Well, he did it for you. He came not just to redeem you and to free you from your sin so that you can experience the gift of life, a life eternal. But he also came to show you the wise way to live. It's the way of faith in which we trust God and look to him and him alone for our salvation. As we've seen, there are limits to how far our earthly wisdom can take us. If anything, it reveals how desperately we are in need of someone beyond the Son to redeem us from the futility of this life. And so we turn to Jesus for our sense of meaning and purpose and life and security, realizing that it's only by his grace through faith in him that we're saved. It's the way of hope in which we realize that while we might not understand every answer to life under the sun, we can trust in the one who has all wisdom and knowledge. Jesus makes the unhappy business of this world bearable. When we place our burdens on him and take hold of the great promise that he has given to us, and that he is making all things new. That, that, that there will in fact be a day where there is no more pain and no more sorrow, no more sickness, and where death will no longer render everything meaningless. And lastly, it's the way of love in which we find our meaning in life 
by loving him and by loving others. Now listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. He says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There is so much to be said about what's taking place here. But in short, Paul, he, he comes to the church in Philippi and he says, look, as you take hold of Christ, who is the source of all wisdom and all knowledge, and as you, exper- as you experience his love, my prayer is that it will then fuel your love for one another. That you would become this dynamic community that not only serves and sharpens each other in your own individual relationships with Jesus, but that you would be intentional in reminding each other that we are to live with the perspective that this world is not all that there is. Because for us who have placed our faith in Christ, it no longer goes life and then death and then burial. There's resurrection. For the day of Christ is coming, and so would we live today in light of that reality? And so as we close, I, I, I want to leave you with three questions. And first, and most importantly, and do you believe in Jesus and in his wisdom and that he offers to all of us who take hold of him? Do you believe that? And maybe you're, you're joining us digitally this morning and you're like, Mason, I, I finally have come to a place of believing that Jesus is the one who's not only redeemed me from my sin, but is the one that my heart has been yearning for. And if that is you, man, we want to celebrate that with you. Or, or maybe you're on the opposite side and you're like, man, I, I'm still trying to figure this all out. I, I have doubts. I got questions. Well, we want to encourage you wherever you're at. Take advantage of that connect card that, that Drew mentioned about earlier. Fill out with whatever you might be comfortable with. We want to hear how you're doing. We want to celebrate life with you. I know that we're living in this kind of weird, digital, and kind of physical world together, but we still want to be a church that celebrates what God is doing in and through you, and also be a a place, a resource for you where we can talk about your doubts and questions. And so reach out to us. And secondly, in your life, where do you prioritize God's word? And, And what I mean by that is this. It is so easy, at least for myself, to be consumed by the noise of our culture and to allow its wisdom to shift my focus from God to being consumed by the things of this world. And so where are you, or and so are you daily surrendering your life and taking hold of the promises and the wisdom that God has given us or given to us within his word on how we ought to live as we navigate life within this fallen world? And then lastly, where do you prioritize community? And specifically within the body of Christ. And I say that because as we live out this life of faith and hope and love, we need each other. A, a continual theme that you see all throughout scripture is that we are called not to run this race alone, um, but together. And, and so I want to encourage you, in, in the coming weeks you're going to hear more about this, but I want to encourage you, and get connected. Find a community group. Find a place where you can run this, this race, not on your own island, but together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so find a group, get plugged in. And so let me pray for us. God, we come before you this morning and we are 
thankful, Father, just for who you are and your goodness and your grace and your love that you've shown to us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have decisively revealed yourself in the person and work in Jesus, but also through your word. Now we pray, Father, that you would help us to take hold of the great promises that you have given to us within your word. Would we live with the perspective, Father, that there is a greater kingdom to come? We pray that you would help us to focus our gaze on you. Would you help us as we leave this service together? By the power of your spirit, would you help us to leave transformed, applying your truth to our everyday life? We are thankful for you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.